some of the faces are familiar from earlier this week. This is going to be my last talk for this particular visit. So I'd like to leave you with some last words. Um, in particular, the Buddha's last words. Uh, imagine yourself in his place. You've been teaching for 45 years. You're about to enter nirvana. You're saying goodbye to your students. This is your last chance to say anything at all to anybody. What would be the message that you would leave? What one teaching out of all the teachings that you gave would you feel would be the most important? And I think it's interesting to reflect on why the Buddha chose what he did chose to say, which was to stress the importance of heedfulness. The very last sentence he said was, bring about your, bring about your own completion, completion of your own practice, through heedfulness. The concept of heedfulness has several implications. He himself said that it was the basis for all skillful mental qualities, all the good things that you would develop in your mind. You have to start with this sense of heedfulness. Heedfulness implies several things. One is that there's dangers out there, also dangers inside. Um, secondly, that the dangers matter. And the third is that you can do something about them. If, the, if there were no dangers, there'd be no need to be heedful. Or if the dangers didn't matter, again, no need to be heedful. And if you couldn't do anything about them, being heedful or not being heedful wouldn't make any difference. So exactly what are these dangers, why do they matter, and what can you do about them? That's the important question. Um, it's impo important also to reflect on how this particular teaching calls into question some of the teachings we hear on being accepting, being non-reactive, being open, being equanimous about what happens in our lives. Because the basic assumptions go run counter to one another. To one another. Um, if you could just simply be open to the present moment without having to worry about anything, that would be fine. But the Buddha says there are things to be concerned about. And so we also have to reflect on what is the, what is the place of non-reactive, equanimous, accepting mind states in the context of a heedful approach to life. To begin with, the dangers. Um, several dangers. One, you have all sorts of unskillful qualities in your own mind. They can lead to all kinds of suffering. Your own greed, anger, and delusion, fear, jealousy, all the things that create havoc in the mind, these really are dangerous because they really can cause suffering. They really do make a difference in the mind. Secondly, that you're also faced with the dangers of aging, illness, and death. These things come. Um, this is a theme that in Thailand you hear in almost every Dharma talk. Almost every Dharma talk in America here has other themes, but here in, Amer in Thailand the themes always are, okay, now that we're born, what do we face? aging, illness, and death. That's for sure. Other things are not so sure, but these are the things that are for sure. Um, and what are you going to do about them? Are you prepared for them? If they hit, well, suddenly suppose there was a sudden illness that were to strike, or if, um, if you were to die tomorrow, would you be ready to die? In fact, the Buddha asked you to think about this every morning, every evening. At sunrise, he says, and don't, when you see the sunrise, reflect. Okay, you could die today. And the next question is, are you ready? And usually the answer is no. So what are you going to do about it? So that the death would not cause suffering, so that you'd be ready to go. At the evening at sunset, the same sort of thing. You could die tonight. Are you ready to go? Okay, what do you have to do in the meantime before then in order to be ready to go? Um, and mainly, mainly comes down to the qualities in your mind, because those are the things that cause suffering at any time. In particular, if they're not taken care of before you go, you're going to be taking a lot of problems with you. 
So the dangers, primarily, the dangers are inside. The outside events can create situations that you might react to in an unskillful way, but it's the unskillful qualities in the mind that create the real danger. Secondly, these dangers do matter. Your suffering does matter. Um, Largely because you can do something about it. Those two things come together. If you couldn't do anything about suffering, you just simply have to accept it, and that would be it. But he says you can do something about it. You can change the qualities of your mind. This is what the teaching on karma is all about. Um, Many times people react to the teaching by saying that it seems to be a way of justifying the status quo or justifying the, the present in terms of past actions. But when the Buddha teaches, uses the teaching and karma in his teaching, it's more focusing on the potential of the present moment. What you've got, what you can do right now, that will have a good impact now and on in the future. So instead of looking back into the past, the teaching and karma looks into the present and its potential for affecting the future. And that you can make a difference in your life by the way you train your mind, by the qualities you build into your mind through the practice, say, of generosity, the practice of um, concentration, the practice of virtue and discernment. All of these things can help in creating a, a refuge within the mind, that safe spot that's not touched by the incidents of aging, illness, and death. Um, the Buddha defines living heedfully in two ways. One is being alive to the fact that death could come at any time. You don't know how much time you have to practice, so take advantage of the time that you do have. There's a famous passage where he's asking the monks, he said, how many times do you reflect on the fact that you could die? in the course of a day. And one monk says, you know, I, I reflect on it once a day. Uh, that I, you know, I'd be lucky if I have one more day to practice. It would give me a good opportunity to, to do quite a lot. Another monk says, I do it twice a day. I said, it'd be good if I could live for another half a day. Give me lots of opportunity to practice. And so the monks compete with one another and they finally get it down to one monk says, look, I, every time my breath comes in, I reflect, I hope I can live until the breath goes out so I can continue the practice. Or when it goes out, I hope I can live for it to come back in again so I can continue with the practice. A lot can be done. And the Buddha said, it's the one who thinks about it with every, de- every breath. That's the one who's heedful. In other words, you take advantage of the moment that you have right now and don't put things off into the future. His second definition for heedfulness, or how to live heedfully, is not quite so dramatic. It's basically being um, showing restraint over your senses. How you look at things, how you listen, how you sniff at things, how you taste them, how you touch them. Um, And restraint here doesn't mean that you don't look or you don't listen, but you're very careful about why. When you turn your eyes to look at something, why are you looking at that thing? When you listen, why are you listening? Secondly, when you do decide to look at something, how are you looking at it? Suppose there's something that might incite some lust in your mind. Can you look at that thing in a way that doesn't incite the lust? Look at, the, look at its other side. Um, as, as, as a John Lee used to say, when you see something beautiful, look for its unbeautiful side as well. When you see something ugly or, dis, or distressful, look for its good side as well. As he said, be a person with two eyes, not just one. See things from both angles so that you find that you're not exciting unskillful qualities in your mind. We often think of the mind as being simply a passive receptor for input that comes in from outside. But when you start practicing restraint of the senses, you begin to realize just the fact that you're looking has an intentional element and has an element that can either create problems for the mind or not create problems for the mind. So before sort of the germs come in from outside that might excite greed, anger, and delusion, you have to look at how you're letting them in and realize that it's not their fault that you're angry. It's not their fault that you feel lustful or desiring. 
or jealous or whatever. Okay, it's the way you look at these things that creates the problems. And so these are the two ways that you live heedfully. One is reflecting on how little time you have to practice, and two, reflecting on the fact that simply the way you look at things, the way you listen to them, can make a big difference in the state of your mind. It all seems so casual and ordinary. We've got so much coming in at us through our senses, especially nowadays, that we reflect our we forget to reflect on how responsible we are for how things get let in and the processing that they go through as they get into the mind. Once you turn to look at the mind itself, this is also an area where you need to use restraint. There's a famous passage where the Buddha comments that how he got onto the path of practice is when he realized that he could divide his thoughts into two types, skillful and unskillful, harmful and harmless. And what this means is the ability to step back from you know, the chatter that's going on in your mind and just looking at the thoughts, not so much in terms of their content, but what they're going to do. Where is this thought going to lead you? And this is an, this is an important element in any kind of practice. Is one, the ability to step back, and two, to look at what's going on in the mind simply as a series of events without getting involved in the discussion. I've made this point several times here before, but I think it bears repeating. It's useful to look at your mind like a committee. Lots of voices in there, all kinds of agendas. Sometimes they're friendly, sometimes they're not. And sometimes it's like a dogfight in there. And if you go in the middle of the dogfight, you know what happens. You get bitten by both sides. And so it's good to have a place where you can step back and look at what's going on. And secondly, not get too worried about the issues. I mean, why are these dogs fighting? Well, you don't have to know. You just step back, get out of the way. And then watch and say, okay, if I get involved in this, what's going to happen? The Buddha from that point, he was able to divide his thoughts into the types that were skillful and unskillful. The skillful ones were the ones that had no um, no thoughts of renunciation, not getting tied up in sensual desires. That's one. The second one is no thoughts of ill will for anybody. You don't mean anybody harm. Or you wouldn't necessarily like to see other people suffer. And then the third one is no thoughts of of harming. Harming yourself, harming other people. These are skillful thoughts, and the the ones that are unskillful, of course, are the ones that are involved in sensual passion, ill will. Ill will doesn't mean just plain old anger, it means more that you really want to see that bastard suffer. That's ill will. That kind of thought, that's unskillful. And then thoughts of causing harm, one way or the other. And he compared his his thoughts to cows. This is like having a herd of cows. If you see that they're unskillful thoughts, you would check them to make sure that they don't get into danger. And back in those days, the big danger was was that during the during the rainy season or right afterwards, this is when the fields were sown with with rice, and the big thing you wanted to make sure was that your cows didn't get into somebody's rice field and eat up the rice, because that's what a lot of problems were back in those days. So he said, it's like your, your the cows during the rainy season. The, you check them and you poke them and you tap them to keep them out of the rice fields. Okay, whenever you notice an unskillful thought is coming into your mind, you don't give it rain. You don't sit back and say, ah, yes, I must be accepting of this unskillful thought. That's the wrong use of acceptance. It doesn't mean, of course, that you go into denial about the thought. You have to learn the skillful ways to hold your thoughts in check. And the Buddha gives totally a list of five. And you'll find from your practice that these fives are just kind of beginning ideas of how you can herd your thoughts. The first one simply, if you see an unskillful thought arising in the mind, you say, look, I don't need to go there. I've got better things to think about. Give yourself something better to think about. If you're meditating, you can simply go back to the object of your meditation. 
The second one is if you find that the first technique doesn't work, then the second one is to reflect on the drawbacks. If I think about that particular topic for the next 24 hours, where is it going to get me? And it's pretty easy to see. If, you know, if it's an unskillful thought, you don't want to go there. Um, because you start creating these ruts in your mind. Um, the third way of approaching the thoughts is simply to ignore them. The image I tend to think of is if being over in Asia and a beggar comes up to you on the street. And you know if you can turn to the beggar to chase the beggar away, he's got you. Or like a crazy person coming up and talking to you. And you try to cra- chase a crazy person away, they've got you. They've got you entangled in their web. And so you say, okay, there's going to be these unskillful thoughts going on in my head, but I don't have to get involved. Let them chatter away on their own, but I've got, I've got my meditation object to focus on. I've got something better to, to focus my attention on. The fourth way of dealing with unskillful thoughts is simply to relax around them. Because you'll find as you get more and more sensitive to the breath energy in your body, that every time a thought goes to the mind and gets lodged in the mind, there's going to be a pattern of tension someplace in the body that corresponds with the thought. If you can find that pattern of tension and release it, the thought goes away. It doesn't have anything to hold on to. The fifth technique for riding herd on your thoughts, if the other four techniques don't work, he says, okay, grit your teeth, press your tongue against the palate of, the roof, the palate of your mouth, and say, I will not think that thought. <laughs> and if we think of this as a series, this is a, a sort of a toolbox or a sewing kit for dealing with um, problems in your life, this one is a sledgehammer. Um, and as with all sledgehammers, it doesn't do the most refined work, but sometimes it's pretty effective. Um, and then you find it takes a lot of willpower to, to, to keep that particular method up. But you find after a while, once the thoughts seem to go away, then you can go back to the other four methods and find another one that does kind of the refined work of actually uprooting the thought. So there are skillful ways of dealing with thoughts. Many times we feel that if we try to fight off a particular thought, that just gives it more power. Okay, well in this case you would ignore it or you would just relax around it. Other times there are those thoughts that you really do have to actively counteract sort of think your way through. Okay, what kind of reasoning is, is keeping this particular thought, giving this particular thought to hold over my mind? Got to attack it from various angles. But you find if you can use a variety of tools with your thinking, you find that you begin to have some control over what you think. So then when the time comes when you need to think, you can. When you don't want to think about something, you don't have to. The image they use in Thailand often is of having a sword. If you have your sword outside the scabbard all the time, it's going to get rusty. You pull it out only when you really need it. Keep it, otherwise keep it in good shape. Um, but then the Buddha says, okay, once, once you've got your thoughts under control like this, then okay, what's left are the skillful thoughts. And you realize that if you think about skillful things, it um, doesn't do you any harm. However, thinking a lot can wear out the mind. And so this is when you turn the mind to be more still. And you go from thinking skillful thoughts to something a more skillful mental state, which is to bring the mind into concentration, to bring the mind into stillness. But notice how the Buddha teaches you to do that. If you're sitting down with lots of unskillful thoughts, he says, well, one technique is to say, okay, well, let's just think about the breath for a while. Now, if it doesn't immediately go to the breath, okay, then you've got to work through the thoughts. Get them, if you've got an unskillful narrative going on in your mind, sometimes you have to work into a skillful narrative before you can then stop all narratives and just sit within the present moment. 
So remember this when you sit down to meditate and the mind just refuses to settle down. Then maybe you've actually got to deal with some of the issues that are being presented. Some of the topics the Buddha gives as means for things to think about before the mind settles down include thinking about the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, thinking about your own virtue, thinking about your own generosity in the past. Um, Thinking about your own virtue and generosity helps to get rid of thoughts that you know, you're an unworthy person, no wonder you can't meditate, you're a bad person, nothing's going to go good because you're such a miserable fool, or whatever. That kind of chatter. Well, you remind yourself, I have done good in the past. You know? Not totally worthless. And, remind, and reminding yourself of that kind of good, the good that you've done, gives you a certain encouragement, gives you a certain confidence in the practice. Years back, when I first came back to the States, um, Ajahn Suwat, one of my teachers was invited to give a meditation retreat in IMS in Barrie. And it was his first time teaching a large group of Westerners meditation. And I remember him commenting on the second or third day. He said, you know, these meditators are awfully grim. And you look back, and sure enough, everybody was <clears throat> getting to nirvana before the retreat is over, um, kind of attitude. And his comment was, is because you know, they haven't really learned any confidence in the Buddha yet. You, know, you haven't had any experience in being generous or listening to the other, the, some of the more simple teachings like being generous and being virtuous. And one, seeing the sense of well-being that comes, the sense of, secondly, the sense of self-worth that comes through these practices. And that, as a result, you know, you're, we're, we're, it's difficult to fight off any sense of doubt. And so you, we, what we tend to do is just sort of push it out of the way. But if you come to the meditation having you know, practiced virtue and generosity, you find there's a sense of self-confidence that can carry you through. And so that's an important part of the meditation. It's not just what you do when you sit with your eyes closed. It's how you lead your life in the ways that you try to be generous and try to be virtuous in the rest of your days. Other topics that are useful to think about are the one that's primarily there for, for heedfulness is reflecting on the fact of death. Death could come at any time. And as we said earlier, you have to ask yourself, are you ready to go? If not, okay, now you've got some time to meditate right now. Okay, it's a good time to meditate. Don't think, put things off. So in this way, you begin to see how heedfulness is an important and essential quality to everything you do. Because if you have an attitude, well, it doesn't really matter what I do, or if you have the, the attitude that it, um, I can be equanimous and accepting about everything, you don't have the motivation to work on the qualities that really do need to be de uh, developed in the mind. And then you miss out on an important opportunity, which is, as the Buddha said, you know, human beings can attain a, ha a happiness that doesn't depend on conditions through the training of the mind. Now, the fact that that potential is there, it, it, it should excite some sort of interest in you, because you look at the other forms of happiness that are being offered to you throughout the world, and there's not much. You know, a new car, a new house, a new relationship, and they're good for a while, and then after a while they begin to get old. And then what are you going to do? Well, you look for a new one, which in the terms of a car or a house may not be too bad. And you start looking for new relationships. That can get pretty sticky. Um, but the Buddha says there are other ways of finding happiness, and they can come through developing the mind. He means that as a challenge. Are you interested in a happiness that doesn't change? If you are, okay, this is the path. You look around to the alternatives, and he said, if you have a sense of heedfulness about how important your happiness is, and here he's offering you a chance to use your own powers to, to get to a true happiness, it merits your attention. 
And if you do have a sense of urgency about your happiness, a sense of heedfulness about the dangers that lie around you, it, it's, it's in your own best interest to look into what the Buddha has to say. So when you look at the teaching on, on heedfulness, you find that it underlies everything, the whole path, forms a basis for the whole path. So what he was doing in his last words was reminding people, okay, this is where it starts. From here, if you have an attitude of heedfulness, all the rest of the path makes sense. All the rest of the path becomes a lot easier to follow as well. It gives you both your motivation and also confidence. After all, as I said, if a true happiness were not available, the Buddha wouldn't have bothered to teach. He wouldn't have bothered to teach heedfulness because he said, what is there to do? You just sort of put up with what's coming in your, in, in, in your life and then when it's all over, that's it. But he's saying, no, that's not the case. There is a true happiness that's available. If you're heedful and if you realize the importance of your actions from, from moment to moment to moment, okay, then that happiness is possible. So those are some of the thoughts on heedfulness that I'd like to toss out to you. I was wondering what you wanted to toss back. Heedfulness and mindfulness. Mindfulness is simply re- keeping something in mind. Heedfulness is having an urgency about it. One having a sense of the importance of keeping something in mind. Why do this? So it's partly motivation, and, sense, and secondly, gives you a sense of urgency about the practice. And third, well, the urgency is there because you know there are dangers around, around especially in your mind. agents of greed, anger, and delusion, where these things can lead. And you remind yourself, okay, this is why I'm trying to be mindful, is so that these dangers don't overcome me. So it's motivation. In listening to you speak, I'm very struck by your demeanor. You're a monastic, and that's a departure from our usual fare here. And I, um, excuse me. I have a reaction that I see in myself when you when you talk because, mm-hmm. like everybody in this room, I suppose I have some very serious issues that I'm facing in this life, and one of the ways I guess that I cope is to is to um, dig into the anatta part mm-hmm. of of seeing the world, and I'm wondering how all of the emphasis on heedfulness toward my own well-being mm-hmm. relates to the idea of anatta and the emptiness of my own self. Is this, am I just running around trying to hide from what you're pointing at and saying that I need to be more vigilant and more heedful about certain things that I might be letting into my mind? Or is there something really there that, I, that, that you could speak to? There's a lot there. Um, one is the understanding of what the Buddha had to say about not-self. He never said there is no self. He never said there is a self. That was one of those questions he put aside. What he's focusing on was that okay, we, what we do know we have is we do have our actions and the actions do have results. And that's something you want to be watch out for because not only are you being affected by your actions, but the people around you are being affected by your, your actions as well. And when you look at the question, okay, what would be a true happiness? It would be one that it doesn't require that you, you're taking anything away from anyone else. Do you have a happiness like that yet? At times. At times, okay. You want, to, you want to maximize that. And that's what the practice is for. 
I mean, what it, it's interesting that when the Buddha talks about working towards happiness, the way he approaches it, it's in such a way as to develop qualities of wisdom, qualities of compassion for other people, as well as for yourself, and also purity in your actions. In terms of wisdom, his, his def- defining question for wisdom, what when I do it will be for my long-term welfare and happiness. In other words, you're looking for something that's long-term, not just sort of quick, quick bites down at the McDonald's, but you want something that lasts for a long period of time, because only, only that kind of happiness is worth the effort that goes into it. One. As for, as, for, as for compassion, he says, reflect on the fact that you're looking for happiness, everybody else around you is looking for happiness as well. If your happiness depends on their unhappiness, they're going to be working against your happiness. You want to find a happiness that doesn't conflict with other people's desire for happiness as well. Otherwise, it's going to be extremely unstable. And then thirdly, as far as purity, he says, the whole quest for happiness requires that you look carefully at what you do and look at the results of what you do. If you see that something that you're planning to do something that you know is going to be harmful, you don't do it. If you think it's not going to be harmful, go ahead and do it. But if you find that it's causing harm, you stop. Or if all the time you did it, you didn't see any harm, but later on you realize that long-term reactions were causing harm, then you resolve not to do that again. And one of those skillful qualities you need to have about all this is a good humor. Not beating yourself over the head when you make a mistake. And saying, okay, well, I'm just a human being. Everybody else is just a human being. We're all trying, or some of us are trying. But you can't demand perfection out of everyone. But if you keep reflecting on your actions and learning from your mistakes, you find that your actions get closer and closer and closer to providing the happiness that you want. And then once you find that true happiness, as one of my teachers once said, when you find the ultimate happiness, it doesn't matter whether there's a self there or not. You're not going to ask who's experiencing this, it's just there. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you find that the thinking about renunciation is getting you all frazzled, you've got to rest. Then, you know, how do you think monks get through their lives with you know, being celibate without having some sort of inner, inner sense of calm? Because you're, you're thinking about, gee, I've got to give this up, I've got to give that up, I should give this up, I should give that up. After a while, you get kind of. <laughs> get kind of upset, you know. <laughs> but if you've got a sense of, you know, the bliss and well-being, rapture that you can tap into just about any time you want, it's a lot easier to give things up. So you, know, you think about the value of renunciation. Well, the, the strength you need in order to renounce things comes from this inner sense of calm, the inner center. Did I, does that answer your question? Um, well, I'm trying to find out how one balances the calm, uh, how one balances the the approach to renunciation or any of the other two. Trial and error. Getting. Trial and error. Try. We certainly don't have enough in our society to encourage renunciation. It'd be useful if we had more of that. I will use that as an example. I think what I was focusing on is I was reading this sort of the other way. I can find my own 
I was reading the Sutta last night, and, and I think this, what made me stop and think was, so the Buddha says, so you get tired, the body gets tired, your concentration gets thrown out of sync. And I guess it doesn't, it's not too helpful. So it's not helpful to, be, to think on skillful thoughts. Right. It's helpful to think skillful thoughts, but in moderation. Up to a point. In, in moderation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Having a sense of time and place. At time, Jeff, in an earlier talk, you had referred to heedfulness as um, composed of uh, mindfulness, alertness, and ardency. Mm-hmm. And I've been going over those in my mind, and I, I was wondering if you would be willing to um, uh, define those again or okay. describe those again. Okay. Mindfulness specifically is the ability to keep something in mind. You might, if you're practicing meditation, you, you keep the object of your meditation in mind. In, this, in the larger sense of heedfulness, it means keeping sort of the, the context of your life in mind. In fact, okay, today I may be totally focused on, the, on this one issue, but I should also remember there are these larger issues encompassing my life. Particularly, the, as I said, the, the fact of aging, illness, and death, and the need to develop good qualities of mind in order to encounter these things and, and deal with them properly. So that's another kind of mindfulness as well. Then alertness means keeping watch over your actions. What are you actually doing? In the context of, of meditation, it's okay, you've got this topic that you've chosen, told yourself you want to stay with. Are you really with it? Are you with it in a comfortable way, in a way that's stable and, and maintainable? In other areas of life, it can also mean, okay, I, I see this larger context of my life. Are my actions in keeping with this, my, my sense of the larger context? And then finally, ardency. If you find yourself drifting off or not living in line with your larger values, okay, then you bring yourself back right away, realizing you don't have that much time, necessarily. So that's sort of applying that, because you can apply those three qualities to your meditation. You know, if you find yourself wandering off the topic of meditation, you don't say, well, you know, I've got a whole hour to meditate, give me you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to wander a little bit more, then I'll gradually get back. No, right now. Bring it back. And if you find that your actions are wandering away or your thoughts are wandering away in the larger context from your larger values, I've got to bring that back right now. I just can't let myself indulge in that unskillful thinking. I'm I'm struck by um, the moderation and timing of your session today. That uh, you gave a, a Dharma talk, and then, with about half of the time left, tossed it back to us. And you told the story about breathing in and out. Seeing the ugly and the beautiful, the beautiful and the ugly. Mm-hmm. And talked about breathing 
not breathing germs in. And that was a very poetic image to me. I began to think of the beautiful and the germs in and out. And that in our language, germ means life as well as pathogen mm -hmm. and death. And that there's a certain symmetry in and out. Um, thank you. I find that in my meditation, the left side of my body is like very much alive and the right side really isn't much. And I've always been puzzled by that. I've tried um, directing my mind to feel the right side more. Um, not exactly sure what the end result of that is. But I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. I don't know quite what to make of it. It's common. Just about everybody, when you get in touch with your body, you find that one side is a little bit more vivid than the other side. But it's also useful to learn how to make the, the lesser side, or the less visit, vivid side, give it a little bit more energy. And just consciously think of breathing in that side of your body. And you're not going to see results right away, but over time, it balances out. When you were talking about um, heedfulness, you mentioned urgency. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a little bit about the balance between urgency, not wasting time, and rushing around? Again, you have to do it skillfully. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things to notice is if you're pushing yourself so hard that you're getting frazzled and that the results are getting less and less and less satisfactory, okay, you've got to pull back. I mean, notice how much of the Buddha's teachings is on concentration, getting the mind still. Because you want to be co coming from a position of strength. And you also have to learn how to monitor your, your, sort of your, your inner level of strength and begin to realize, okay, now that it's getting, you can sense when it's getting depleted. And then have a place to go back to. Because not, not all the work in meditation is concentration, but a lot of it depends on the concentration. I, I don't know if this is actually a Theravadan term, but inclining the mind towards your your own happiness. Can you speak a little bit about that? What was the term? Inclining the mind, inclining the mind? towards your own happiness. Um. It's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Part of it requires a fair amount of talking yourself into it sometimes if you're not already inclined in that direction. In which case you have to realize the importance of developing a sense of peace or well-being in yourself if you're going to be helpful to anybody at all. In which case you basically talk yourself into seeing that importance. You think of parallels, think of analogies. And if you don't have any water, you can't give water to other people. If you don't have any peace, you can't provide peace for the people around you. So if there's a feeling that it's selfish to look for your own happiness, you have to realize, if I have a good, solid sense of happiness inside, I don't have to lean on other people so much. 
and I actually will have more to provide them. So whatever types of thinking you can do, I mean, you can you can read passages from the Dharma, you can read, um, listen to Dharma talks that help sort of incline the mind in that direction to seeing the wisdom of that. Because um, without that kind of motivation, everything else falls apart. Is that what you're getting at? Somewhat, but when you're in the middle of um, some unskillful thinking to incline the mind, or maybe even get up and do something different, mm-hmm. um, it's more like an action a mode mm-hmm. of realizing that there's something unskillful happening, right. not only in the mind, but maybe in your actions, um, and actually inclining your mind towards something that is more skillful. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the completion of your own happiness. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just wondering when there's this, you know, it's unskillful thoughts that continue to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what would you recommend as far as inclining the mind to get away from them? Well, as oh. an a- as an action to oh. do. Oh. Um. <coughs> There are lots of things you can do. The first thing you can do is if the mind says, you know, you, you've got this particular pattern of thinking going on, and the mind says, even if you try to fight me, I'm going to come back. You know, so what does it matter? And you say, it matters right now. I'm going to get up and do something else, think something else, at least for a few minutes. If you're involved in an argument with somebody and you realize that you're getting out of control, walk away. If you're meditating and getting really drowsy, get up and walk around. But I find that sort of the most, most debilitating thought that can harm the mind is this one, that when an unskillful thought pattern comes into the mind and the mind says, it's going to come back, so why try to fight? You've got to figure, I don't believe that. One of the best illustrations of a meditation book I ever saw was one in which you had it, it was a tiger. And the face of the tiger was extremely realistic. All the hairs and fur and everything were drawn into in great detail. And the body of the tiger was origami. It was a paper tiger. <laughs> so a lot of these things come into the mind and they look really strong and really overcoming, overwhelming. Just wait for a while. Just breathe through them for a little bit. And then you find it's not that compelling anymore. That particular way of thinking or that particular way of action. So sometimes it's, sometimes it's just, okay, stop, watch for a little bit. And then think of the breath going through your body as comfortably as possible. That's the other thing, is that you need some allies. And I find that you want to use the breath as an ally. If you can get so that you can breathe comfortably, get the breath energy flowing through your body. Then you notice wherever the tension tends to build up, say it's in your hands, your feet, and in the, in the pit of your stomach, just think, relax. Even if just for a little bit. And that takes a lot of the edge of the, the unskillful thinking away. So you can use that. You can learn to use your body as an ally as well. We'll give that a try. Yes? I guess uh, I was struck when you uh, talked about how it can get, uh, when you're not supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do that, and your life is very restrictive. I res- sometimes I feel like uh, restraint or the practice of ethics, especially in our, like, I 
thinking, especially about consumerism, mm -hmm. and like, well, I shouldn't buy this because this is produced here, and there's, I mean, it gets really exhausting. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and then you feel like residing, like, I'm just gonna, you know, go to Walmart. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go to extremes. I guess that the, uh, you get really, I get really exhausted. And then the other thing is like uh, how sometimes your own, you, you were talking about your own happiness and then uh, the happiness of others. What sometimes your ethic and like if you're really clinging onto your ethics, they impinge upon other people's happiness mm -hmm. because it's not an appropriate. I, don't, I can't explain. But as long as you're not trying to force other people to abide by your sense of ethics, you're okay. Because basically, okay, the fact that you don't want to lie, you're not going around telling, going around other tell, telling other people they can't lie to you. Of course, they're going to lie to you sometimes. It's just you're a, a vow that you've made to yourself. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to. If it's an issue of someone's inviting you out for dinner and you don't like to eat, you know, non-vegetarian food, but that's all that they're giving you, okay, I'd say take the non-vegetarian food because after all, it's being offered in hospitality. So that's one way in which you say, okay, I'll take the principle of hospitality right now as being more important than the purity of the food coming in in my mouth. But the ethics that you that you, that you really have to hold on to are one: you're not going to lie, you're not going to kill, you're not going to have illicit sex, you're not going to take intoxicants, you're not going to steal. That doesn't impinge on anybody else in a bad way. I guess my question is: I, I do I, I don't know if I'm constructing it like often the sense of I interpret harm or I feel like am I taking it too far now because then I start have to actually have to construct a narrative. Like directing, like, oh, you know, it's pretty easy not to lie. Well, no, actually, it's not. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's more direct. Like you can feel it. Whereas there's other ones where there has to be a narrative, like, oh, I am causing harm, and I have to think of many links, and that's mm -hmm. when it gets exhausting. And okay, in terms of your, in terms of um, what you buy, yeah. as long as you're not telling them to kill the lobster in the restaurant, yeah. that's the extent to which your ethical responsibility goes to begin with. Now, if you see that there are further implications that you find are important, if you go around being totally obsessed by, you know, what is the impact of my consumption on American society going to be? Become a monk, okay? you've got other more important things to do with your mind than worry about just, you know, your your role as a consumer and that being an all-consuming role. I mean, you want that to be. <laughs> I think we're running out of time. So. so, thank you for your attention. <laughs>